Welcome to the Sports Equity Podcast. Here we talk to special guests from teams, brands, and agencies to discuss the value that sports brings to business through current trends and best practices with your host, Brett Weisbrot. Our guest is a graduate of Washington State, had the opportunity to play with elite talent in the National Football League, and is now building his own business as the fullback of finance, teaching financial planning to those on and off the field. Today, we welcome Jed Collins to the program. Brett, appreciate uh, the time, the opportunity to share the message, and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, of course, me too. So for those that don't know Jedediah Collins, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from? Absolutely. So born and raised uh, Southern California, um, got to go play at Mission Viejo High School, which turned out to be a pretty powerhouse high school for high school football. I uh, got to take my talents up to uh, Pullman, Washington, play football at Washington State, where I was an accounting major, um, and then got to chase the dream in the NFL for a few years. Um, but truly, just uh, now now settled in just outside of Seattle, Bellevue, Washington, but all my family's still back in Southern California, and I get to go visit them in some sunshine often enough. That's great. And, you know, where would you say at the young age you first grew that passion for sports? Oh, that's, uh, I mean, right out the gate. So my father was a big basketball player. He uh, actually got drafted in the NBA, the ABA, um, ended up going to law school instead. Real, real bad decision there for somebody becoming a lawyer and uh, going to own a law firm. But uh, it, our backyard was, you know, the roll the ball out and go compete. Uh, basketball was our folk family focused sport because of, you know, my dad's presence in it. But from the early ages of five, six, seven, I remember getting on um, courts and just really taking pride and ownership of winning, of getting out there and trying to be the best I can be. Being the youngest brother of you know, the three boys, I lost a lot growing up and truly in the backyard. My dad invented a game called King for a Day where we'd play one-on-one basketball uh, round robin between the three boys and the winner would be King and get to boss the other brothers around. You know, go take out the trash, go sweep the kennel, bring me my dinner, bring me a soda. Um, And so growing up playing King for a Day, I did not win very much. And my passion for the game came more from losing than from winning. It was this idea that I, I quickly and early in my, my life realized losing doesn't defeat you as long as I was getting better. Later in life, I got introduced to a concept called Kaizen, uh, which is a Japanese term meaning continuous improvement. And I really attribute a lot of my success to losing each and every day in that backyard on one-on-one basketball with my brothers. And when would you say that transitioned over to football? Um. In college. So high school is when I first started to play tackle football. My mom wouldn't let me play tackle early on. And I was a thick kid, so I probably would have had to play a grade or two up anyways. But uh, my high school football career at the varsity level, I won 41 games in a row. I ended up losing the championship game my senior year. So I ended up 41 and one, uh, which I put on my my defensive coordinator for, you know, jinxing us because he asked me that before the game. Do you want to end 42 and 0 or 41 and 1? Um, but then in going to college, I started to to realize the game of football was such an amazing controlled chaos 
but one in which every play somebody's going to lose every play. There's uh, a, a midst of, you know, uh, spontaneity amidst of who can pivot and adjust the quickest. And then somebody loses on every play. And if you don't have the mentality and the mindset to be able to handle that, it's going to be something that detracts and deteriorates your abilities to get out on the field. And so in college, when we started to lose, which was my first introduction to losing in football, um, I quickly started to gather what, what I was losing at, what the team was losing at, but still through it all, how was I going to get better? Where, where can I take that extra step um, and truly see, you know, another beautiful lesson that the game in sports teaches you, which is the identification of what is in your control and what is not in your control. But mm-hmm. um, growing up, you know, eight, nine, 10 playing basketball and then being 18, 19, 20, playing football that that mindset of uh allowing myself to lose uh but coming back and not that i'm a loser but coming back knowing i just got better because i learned something and being a socal guy how did that opportunity at washington state first come about oh well um yeah southern california to pullman washington was not two totally different worlds, but about as far away from each other as you could kind of culturally get, which I had actually enjoyed, let it pour over me. And, and part of the enticing factor was seeing a different you know, pace and space of life. Um, but uh, as I looked at it, the, the scholarship route was definitely not going to be found in the basketball element for me. I was pretty good. I was CIF player of the year. Um, but a 6'1", 240, 250-pound player is not going to go many D1 colleges. Uh, so I, I saw that it was going to be football that would take me somewhere. And as I ventured into that, my my team and the, the recruiting process was going very soundly until I ran a 40-yard dash. And once you run a 40-yard dash over five flat, a lot of teams kind of give up on you. But the beauty of going to Washington State was that it was going to maintain that West Coast connection. I was going to get to play in what was then the Pac-10 against some of these teams, USC, UCLA, that I grew up watching. Um, And really the connection came on my recruiting trip, going, actually having my first beers on my recruiting trip in Pullman. And just really seeing a different experience of of life, a different pace of people outside of the bubble of Orange County. and they were going to give me an athletic scholarship. So that kind of rang pretty high in my book. And high school and college was generally a fullback or you know, where were you on the field in those places? So that's, you know, I'm a journeyman in every sense of the word. Uh, my NFL days, definitely a journey, but my positions were also very much um, always evolving. So in, in high school, I, my primary position was inside middle linebacker. I wanted to be Brian Urlacher and uh, Ray Lewis and those guys and, and really, you know, set the tone of the team. And that's what I was recruited as. I was, you know, first team all state linebacker coming out and I get to college to that next level. And I realize, you know, being a step slow, I can make up for with some instinct and some toughness. Being two steps slow at that next level is going to be really hard. And they identified pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be able to cover too many tight ends inside, you know, slot wide receivers, running backs, one-on-one. And so they shifted me over to tight end. Um, We didn't have a fullback at Washington state in our system. So that wasn't an option, but moving it over to to tight end, I was a little bit of a mauler and I'd go in, I'd hit people. 
Um, but what was really interesting is as I progressed and excelled at Washington State, my comfortability went back to what I do best, which is get a little bit better each and every day. And I started to realize in route running, even though I was not the uh, four, six, 40 guys in route running, I could be able to diagnose coverages, be able to see players, be able to position myself and get little bits of separation. Um, and for a while, I was actually leading the nation in uh, receiving receptions by a tight end my senior year, um, ending with about 52. I missed my last game and a half, which obviously hurts if you're trying to beat, win the nation in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I positioned into kind of a receiving small H-backy type tight end. And then going into the NFL, they stood me next to uh, some NFL style tight ends. And I'm not 6'6", and I don't run that fast speed. So the last position available was fullback. And it had a short line of volunteers. Um, and so my first and second year in the league, that was truly what my, my school of hard knocks was, was how to learn a new position competing against the best in the world, uh, which definitely came with some humbling. Um, but eventually it got me to a place and a point where I became the best in the world at, at the fullback position. You know, I don't know what you know, obviously playing on the field, but from what I've seen over the years, there's a lot of tight ends out there that have a major basketball prominence in mm -hmm. their game, right? Which you had, it's just a couple of inches can make that big of a difference. It absolutely does. Um, inches and toughness. You know, a lot of people look at like, oh, LeBron James would kill it on a football field. Can he get up? Can he get up over and over again? Uh, I got to play with Jimmy Graham, obviously one of the, the basketball converts down in New Orleans. And it was, can he, he go stand back there and do kickoff return before he can go catch the touchdowns? He got to prove himself that way. But the, the, the idea of basketball is so fluid there are some tremendous athletes who play football, who play baseball, who play soccer, who play hockey. But I think basketball players are the most fluid athletes of any sport. And just being able to body position, understand how your physical specimen works and in regards to an opponent, I think basketball really gets you that footwork, gets that fluidity, and you can start to see it in tight ends that used to be former basketball players. They have much smoother routes than a, a traditional bulky 6'6", 250 tight end who's a, more of a bruiser. Um, and then, you, yeah, obviously in the red zone, you get to use that vertical, but um, that's only a few times a year. And I know we're transitioning more to the you know professional war aspect of your life, but you know from the collegiate side of things, what was your biggest takeaway playing football collegiately? Um, you know, it, it twofold, it was number one, um, again, like I mentioned the college in itself and the playing college football at a high level taught me, um, to, to control what I can control. I wasn't going to be the star starter anymore. Um, I earned that my senior year, but I didn't even start until my senior year. I wasn't going to be on a, you know, top 10 or, or championship team because that's just who we were. We were competing to get wins. Um, academically, I wasn't able to control classes or my grades as much as I could in high school. And so it was really that, that awareness of I can't control the, the, the product. I can't control the outcome, but I could start to identify and control the processes and what I was inputting. 
And really seeing that play out throughout my college career, both on the field and in the classroom of, well, I can control studying for an hour instead of doing this, or I can control, mm-hmm. you know, going to get that workout in instead of doing that. That, that to me was that, that time management, that self-discipline that I needed to be, to find away from my home. Um, and the other one is always, and this, this is maybe not college specifically, but college really exemplified it because it was the first times I was on my own is setting goals. Um, even right now I've set a, a strange goal that I'm going to do 26,000 pushups in 2021. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why. I, I think I saw a Goggins video in December and got kind of fired up, but I love the idea of setting goals for myself and I love them being bigger goals and then breaking down and building a strategy on how I'm going to attack them and achieve them. No different than writing a book, no different than becoming a starter, no different than anything we're doing in life. Um, college taught me to set goals and then to, to build those strategies. So was that equivalent to what, about 500 a week you're doing just in pushups? That's exactly. So people ask me, they're like 26,000, that's impossible. I said, well, could you do a hundred today? Well, yeah. Well, could you do, you know, five, 500 this week? Yeah, that seems good. That's all you got to do. And that's the point. And that's the beauty of all of this is you get your syllabus the first day of class and you look at it and you say, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do all this. But then you get to back in and start to measure out, okay, what am I supposed to do today? What am I supposed to do this week, this month? Um, As a young entrepreneur, I've started this uh, concept called bullet journaling, which I was doing a variety of in many different ways before I even knew what it was. And this gave me a good structure, but it's that simplicity of what is your tasks today? Can you accomplish those? Anything due tomorrow or supposed to be done tomorrow, put on the task list for tomorrow. Um, it just gives you that clarity. And unlike most entrepreneurs, you would actually have weekends off doing 500 a week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, you know, that's such a good call out. Um, we just passed Memorial Day uh, a little bit ago and um, everybody said, oh, well, what are you doing for the long weekend? I, and I always shake my head as an entrepreneur long weekend let alone weekend is is oblivious to me um so yeah you do get a little bit of a break and i know one of one of my neighbors is doing it with me he got he caught the bug um and he does more i think he does 75 a day instead of 100 a day uh, so we're, we're trying different tactics but yeah i like uh you know one day being able to say I don't, i'm not going to drop down and get them in but push-ups it's a hell of a exercise something you can do anywhere and I'll tell you, after about 12,000 of them, you feel a difference. I'm sure. So um, you mentioned the word syllabus, right? And one of the things we were just talking about, and that's a good segue. You know, when during school did you decide to focus on business and numbers? Um, After my freshman year of college, I was a uh, pre-law major. Uh, I mentioned my father was an attorney. My oldest brother's an attorney. The middle brother's an engineer. And so it was kind of assumed that I would just go and become a lawyer. Um, And after my freshman year, I started to ask actually my guidance counselor, well, what jobs, what careers come with the pre-law going to law school? And she started listening them out. And I was like, well, I I don't know if I really want to do those. I like numbers. I'm more of a numbers person than, you know, a a theoretical or analytical person. well, where would I go with that? And she explained to me, if you want to have more doors open, if you want to have more opportunities, learn accounting. 
accounting is the fundamentals of business. It doesn't matter if you are here in Japan, in England, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, mm-hmm. accounting pra- pra- uh, pra- principles translate. And so I liked that. But then she kind of backed out and said, well, we don't have any football players doing accounting. So maybe you should do kind of a minor, should do this over here and, and not really focus. Um, and that, that was the challenge I needed is she tried to talk me actually out of doing accounting because it was too hard for a football player to do it. Um, but it was the beauty of really getting to see a, a new language that I'd never experienced start to play out. It definitely helped me as I transitioned into what I do now, um, understanding the fundamentals of money. But I will be the first to say, I graduated with an excellent degree in accounting. You gave me 100,000 widgets um, in XYZ company. I could do some financial statements, but nobody ever taught me personal finances. And it was a much, much different lens to be able to see the business to the personal and how different they really are. And, and, you know, taking all this into account, both your educational background, but also playing in college, you know, when would you say that all kind of came together to help and and kind of show you you had the opportunity to play professional football after college? Um, Again, like I said, I I was not a true starter until my senior year. I was a utility guy. I played some my sophomore and junior seasons. Uh, but I remember very vividly about five weeks into my senior season, riding up an elevator with a guy wearing a San Diego Chargers polo um, and having a brief conversation with him. And he mentioned, he said, Jed, you're you're one of the two guys I'm here to evaluate and understand and see and meet. And that was the first moment halfway through my senior year season that I ever even fathomed getting to play in the NFL. You know, I, it was a big leap for me to think I can compete at the Pac-10 level against again people who were just better athletes you know more meaner more physical whatever you want to say out on a field um i never really grasped the idea that that was a possibility um and so from there it shifted my my focus my intention and i started to see what i was able to do on the field and it really boosted my confidence on the field knowing nfl teams thought i was performing at that level um to where it it at least went from being a hope to being a dream and once you have a dream you start to, to plan it and attack it and you know the dream didn't come very easily or very quickly but it at least gave me the direction and the the light on to follow and while you're living this dream you know what would you say you learned from playing with the best in the world oh man uh, i have an entire series called rookie to veteran of principles that I took away from sitting in locker rooms, watching the best in the world. Um, No doubt the biggest was the smallest. And it it was in Kansas City. I got to work out with a veteran linebacker, 15-year player. And out on the field, I noticed we'd run 40 yards, he'd run 45. We'd run 50, he'd run 55. In the weight room, we'd put on 225 and he'd slide on two and a halfs and do, you know, instead of set 10, he'd do a set 11. Um, we'd go get two game tapes and he'd get a third game tape. And finally, you know, being around him long enough, I got comfortable. I said, listen, I'm not, what's the difference, man? Five yards. Do you, are you just hard to slow down old man? You know, you're 35 now, uh, two and a half pounds, never seen two and a half pounds make a difference in anything. Why do you do that stuff? And he, you know, got, he got philosophical on me sitting in in an NFL locker room. 
he explained his concept, his mindset was each day he's going to come in and steal inches. He knows after 15 years, every player is younger, cheaper, faster, healthier. Every day he's got to steal an inch on them to keep and maintain his job. And he said an inch will lead to a yard, a yard to a first down, a first down to a score, a score to a win. And wins get us to where why we're all here, the Super Bowl. And I, I vividly remember that conversation. That's one I hope I never forget. It's also something that plays into that Kaizen mindset. It plays into a lot of things that I do in my life today, but it's really just that magnitude of inches. I can translate it into finances with compound, uh, compound interest, the eighth wonder of the world, and looking at how those inches stack up and start to create themselves. But sitting next to greatness, being around Drew Brees on a daily basis for four years and absorbing his standards, his methodologies, his mindset. He's a guy who would, at the break of a, uh, a question, would sit and talk to you about habits, start talking to you about the fundamentals of routines and practicing and looking at these things in a different direction and having, you know, John Wooden's pyramid of success up in his locker. Um, and it was just really neat getting to observe and be around greatness. I got to touch a really neat thing in high school, getting uh, to, to be on championship teams, okay. but then to be around guys who we have a curse. Professional athletes have a curse and we, we have to acknowledge it and identify it and accept it in that we pursue greatness. We, we expect perfection of ourselves. We demand it on a daily basis, not only perfection, but then growth. And that's something that as you transition out, as you start to meet more and more people, you realize that, that mindset is such a blessing and it becomes a curse because you have that expectation of everyone around you. And that's something that you have to begin to um, have better reason with and just understand not everybody has ever been around greatness. They've never felt it and not everybody has any interest in pursuing it. So you mentioned Drew, right? And, you know, Coach Peyton, right? You know, two of the best at what they do. Absolutely. If I were to call either of them, what would they say about you and your work ethic? Oh, man. Uh, do you have their numbers? Can we call them? Uh, I would say both of them appreciated who I was. They, one, Sean Payton changed my life. He gave me an opportunity, you know, let nine, ten other teams would not do, which was give me a chance to, to actually win a job. And if you ask the people in New Orleans what kind of person I was, I was a, a value adder. You tell me what we were doing, and I would ask one simple question of every coach that I came across. How can I add value? What can I do? You want me to go, you know, scout team defensive end? You want me to learn to long snap? You want me to be a fullback who can go play tight end, running back? Where, where is it can, that I can help out, um, as well as four core special teams? So I would think Sean Payton would have seen me as one of those guys he loved because I was his guy. I became the number one fullback in the NFL after being cut a dozen times because Sean Payton gave me a chance because he believed I fit in his system and he gave me that chance to go and prove you do the work, it gets shown. Drew Drew and I became friends. Drew, Drew and I were peers and I fed off him more than any person I've ever been around, excluding maybe Steve Gleason because he's an, an unbelievable human being as well. Um, and so I would hope Drew would say, I was a guy who made him smile more than he did uh, when I wasn't around. 
that is one of the jobs I considered, you know, myself, especially as a fullback, you can either be mean or you can be weird. I chose the weird route because I'm naturally not that mean. And so my goal is to have some comedic relief here and there, grow your hair out, be a silly character. And uh, my hope was that everybody knew I was there to work, but they were going to crack a smile while we were putting some sweat in. Well, I'm, you don't want to see me grow my hair out, but I'm all for being silly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, what I would ask you is who would you say during your course of the NFL was the toughest back that you've ever had to block for? Ooh, the toughest running back to block for um, Darren Sproles, no doubt. Uh, because Darren is so unique, so explosive, quick. Um, his Our styles meshed really well because they were so diverse but it was really hard for me to adopt to his speed. He does everything at a, at an 11 and I'm a bigger, thicker dude. I, I, I high function at seven or eight. Um, so it, it was such a different flow and feel to have him behind me um, to where, you know, some of the, the backs are just much more fluid and have, I would assume Darren had not run I formation tremendously throughout his career. Uh, and so a lot more backs were a little bit more comfortable with that, but I would say that was 90% on me, just not being able to keep up with a guy just, uh, that functions at a different level. And if you can go back to the, you know, your early playing days, what would you have done differently? I would have learned the game better. Um, you, you realize again, some inches, some routines of the greats in, in the NFL, they are students. They could, the offensive player can tell you 18 different defensive strategies, techniques, whys. That's what I started to scratch in, in college when I was route running. But truly, if I could go back from, you know, the, my, my rookie year, I would have asked to go sit down with uh, the running back coach and just watch and listen to what they were thinking to go sit down with the offensive coordinator and start to understand why they were calling plays against certain coverages or certain defenses or certain players. Um, you know, I was a fullback, which meant, you know, X go block zero, you know, go block a circle and don't ask questions, just run really hard into them and get them out of the way. But I, I wish I would have got to, I, I learned, I got my doctorate in the game of football but I wish I would have got to have more open conversations. I became friends with a lot of quarterbacks on my stops and they just get to see the game differently. They get to play this strategy side that nobody else gets to. And the greatest compliment of a offensive lineman is they just won't really want to block the guy in front of them. They don't care what the play call is. They just want to maul the dude lined up against him. That's who you want. You want soldiers. I wish if I could go back to an earlier self, I would, have mastered the game strategy as much as the game that's great and outside of maybe some of the names we've discussed here personalities we've discussed who would you say had the biggest impact on your playing career without a doubt my high school coach bob johnson um he's going through some struggles right now and why we all support him is he i'm a, a one on a list of 100 guys he changed their lives but i i mentioned i was a basketball family I transferred to Mission Viejo as a sophomore after quitting football at, at my first high school um, to focus on my basketball career. And he was a guy who came, you know, put his arm around me, walked me around and just talked to me about my future, what he has being built at on campus in the program. 
and the opportunity that I would have to not go on to division, you know, play college football, but the opportunity I would have to be around champions. And he's, you know, if I look at back at it and say, I never started to play football and just focused on basketball again, I, I would have gone to a small D2 to basketball school to, to where I've come. I owe it all to Bob Johnson. He was the guy I turned to in college when I didn't think I was playing enough along with my parents, but uh, he has always been that mentor, that figure, and truly a big testament to high school football coaches. You have an immense impact on young men's lives when they are becoming confident in what it is to be a young man. And don't ever take that lightly that, you know, 20, 30 years later, people are still going to be thinking and remembering what kind of impact that was. And when would you say from like high school, college, through your playing career, you know, when would you say during those areas of your life that you started to prepare for the second act and more of the financial space? Um, it really came my rookie year after I got, you know, I got cut a bunch and then I got activated by the Cleveland Browns and I started getting a big paycheck rolling in. Um, and I remember very vividly seeing a closed envelope on, on a table in my extended say in Cleveland and knowing I'd already spent every dime of that check. Um, and looking at it and, and not really comprehending what that moment meant, uh, but waking up that night, waking up the next night, kind of in sweat and, and kind of uh, just tense around that decision. Now, I, I ended up buying an engagement ring, and it was a good story because my wife and I are still happily married. But the idea that I was a spender, that I just took money, it came in the door, and it walked right back out that day, that really alerted me and, and awoke me to the this accounting major, this kid from Orange County, knowing very little what to do with money. And so from there, I started to read, you know, the gurus, personal finance books. And eventually my, about my third year in the NFL, a mentor of mine said, Hey, there's this thing called certification financial planning. If you really want to master this language for yourself, this is where I would start. And so I started taking those exams every off season of my journey through the NFL and it, it was truly the best advice I could ever have gotten because it, it shined a light on not just how little I knew, but as I started to understand something, I realized how little everybody knew. And that, that was really the, the beginning of this journey for me. And how would you say the discipline from playing helps you now on the professional level? Well, you, you go back to those off seasons in the NFL. I know a lot of guys weren't spending them getting a certification of financial planning. Um, so today, I, as an entrepreneur, I wake up, you know, I get the, the Sunday scaries and look at my week and say, I hope I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then I wake up and I have my list and I have my assignments and I have my objectives. I treat it no different than going to getting a workout in. Um, it, it, I think of it the same way. If it's not kind of hard, make you uncomfortable and exhaust you, you didn't get a real workout in, nor did you put in a real day's work. Um, and so I look at it and say, I get to proudly say every weekday of the pandemic, whether I had zero income, which was the first several months as all my speaking engagements and all my kind of resources got cut from underneath me to today where business is running and I'm, I'm very confident and excited about where it's headed. I spent every morning getting up at 509, Monday through Friday, 509, didn't matter if the, the, the whole day was kind of a question mark. I was going to get up and I was going to go control what I can control. 
And that was having that intention about me. Um, so that discipline is tremendous as it becomes your professional life. Again, identifying what you do and do not control, but setting those goals and then building a strategy to achieve them allows you to see yourself on a weekly, monthly, daily, quarterly, whatever basis you want to measure yourself with and see the progress, see the growth. And the biggest thing I've had to do in my transition is get used to nobody clapping. You know, we, we as athletes get very excited about hearing applause. Yeah. You made a good play, people clap, come slap you on the head or the butt, something you get instant feedback. I've had to learn to see the wins in my day and take pride in them, take ownership of them. The losses will come, the gut wrenches are going to come, but I've, I've forced myself to enjoy the wins as well. And that's been a really good mindset for me. So now in being the fullback of finance, you know, who, what does a typical audience look like, you know, for what you're looking to accomplish? That's what's amazing. Truly anybody looking to start a financial plan, we wanted to build a curriculum that says, what are the first 10 questions and the first 10 steps, actions you should take in a financial plan? Mm -hmm. um, so we definitely uh, are on high school campuses across the country, working with schools at large or specific groups on campus. Colleges have really opened their doors, working with national Greek uh, fraternity houses, working with athletic departments, working with business schools, as everybody's looking for right now, a virtual financial literacy course. Um, a, a neat opportunity that I wouldn't say is my target audience, but just a, a really good place I get to play is the NFL. They're opening the door. I am no longer an advisor, no longer uh, looking for clients. And that has really built the trust with teams and with the NFL saying, this guy, a former player, is going to come in and do one thing, try to help. That's just Jed being Jed. Can he add value? Yeah, in this department, I believe I can. And so as we look at it, it's, it's a young audience, 16 years old to 24 year olds who are looking to be introduced to the language of money and they begin to own and change the conversation that they're having around money. And that's really what Money Vehicle is all about. And can you maybe tell us your thoughts on how you like to teach financial literacy? I love to teach financial literacy through short, digestible stories. Um, at the end of the day, I, I was a journaler throughout my NFL career. So I love writing. That writing is something that I didn't realize separated me as a creative. But as I started to look at delivering these wellness workshops, I could stand in front of people and give them a definition. And they would walk out and say, that guy knew what the definition of that was. Or I can create a story where they understood what we were talking about before I even introduced them to the concept that it was going to tie into money. And so throughout the book, um, we have stories where, you know, we go to ice cream parlors, we go back to New Orleans in the bayou, we start a lemonade stand, um, even our cash management system. We don't say the B word budget. We use cash management to change that vernacular, but our, our, our cash management system, the money buckets, has a very simple sequence, society, past, present, future, and compassion. And everything is built around an acronym, a story, something to make it easy to digest and easier to un understand. Um, and what we really reference in the, the Money Vehicle course is we want to empower you to use money, U-S-E. So you will understand what we're talking about. You're going to understand your money, the U, 
The S is strategize. You're going to build a strategy for your money. And the E is efficiency. You're going to be more efficient with your money. And so if you are truly using money, USE, that is the intention that you're walking out with. But again, we don't hit it straight on. We use silly, fun, acronyms, stories, anything to make it more memorable and more understandable. You know, and you mentioned this book, this writing piece, your money vehicle there, right? You know, where you become an author in this process. Where did that come about? Uh, little. So I was taking the bus uh, from my home into downtown Seattle to work at, in wealth management. And I was, I, I was really passionate about financial literacy. I liked it. I liked going to schools, going to colleges, going to nonprofits and companies and teaching, uh, whether that was 65-year-old doctors uh, who were 10 times more smarter than me um, or 16-year-old high school kids, you know, trying to figure it out. I enjoyed that atmosphere of saying this language of money, most people were never interest, introduced, to, introduced to. And so in those bus rides, I'd get out a little piece of paper and a pen and start to say, well, you know, if, if we were going to teach somebody about investing, and it was a, a growth stock versus a value stock. Those are terms that people, are, it's so foreign. I, I barely even know what a stock is, let alone a growth stock. So how would I start to play that out? How would I start to explain it? If I, and I have a sister who has special needs, if sis asked me, how would I try to explain it to Emily? And that was the fundamental place I started was, let me find some common ground. Of course, I use football all the time. Football's a great one because people know I'm the fullback of finance. I, I played football, but I use analogies and stories from everything I could think of. The vehicle, the car versus the train is our opening story. Um, and so that was what was really fun. And when you go to that growth versus value, I got to use it this offseason in workshops when I was comparing Trevor Lawrence to Matthew Stafford. Trevor Lawrence being a growth stock, Matthew Stafford being the value stock and seeing which one you would choose and why and what their upsides are, what their downsides are. And then you're able to look at companies through that lens and it makes a little bit more clearer picture. And that's talking about the actual player, right? Not the assets given up to get them. <laughs> you get, see, now we're talking about derivatives. This is a whole other con. No, uh, <laughs> yes, that was talking about the actual player, but you can see how quickly and fun it becomes when you're saying, oh, well, we're talking about a very relevant topical thing. How deep can we take this analogy? Like how, how much can we figure out how to fit in what we want to tell them? And yes, do we get, you know, kind of off the wall on some? Sure. But if the person leaves saying that made sense to me and maybe it made me smile, that's all we're going for. Right. And what was the experience like for you as an individual being published? Amazing. So my father was a journaler, wrote a ton, but never wrote it into a sequenced book. And I really didn't think I was writing a book um, until I sat down and, and realized I had, you know, 50 stories that I was trying to create topics around. And then you begin to put them in a sequential order, start to have some structure to it. And that's really where the curriculum begins. I, I love when people ask me one-off questions and it's always a hard response because I don't know where they are in their journey. I don't know what terminologies I can and can't use. With a curriculum, we get to say, 
hey, by the time you get to chapter eight, I know exactly where you've been because you've walked through it step by step with me. That organization really pays off. So to say I was a published author that people were going to read something that I wrote and then it became an Amazon bestseller, which was a tremendous accomplishment, especially during the pandemic. Um, it validated the idea that this dream, this vision that I've had that I'm on is proving to be the right lane for me, proving to be a good new purpose. Football, sport is a great thing for young people because it produces a purpose for you. And then you transition, have to find a new identity and a new purpose. This has been a really good purpose. And being published was one of those days where um, I remember my book sitting in between Susie Orman and Robert Kiyosaki for, if it was five seconds, it was 15 hours. I don't know, but it was just one of those moments that I said, wow, like, where am I going to be in a year? Where are we going to be in 10 years? Um, this was the start of it. You know, I know we talked a little bit about, about financial literacy, which I want to continue with you in the future. But for the sake of this conversation, you know, how would you say that Wall Street bets and crypto are making financial literacy cool for kids? In a optimistically terrifying way. Um, I think Wall Street bets and cryptocurrency um, has been such a neat conversation it has forced so many young people to be introduced to the concepts around finances and money, how it works. My fear is they're being introduced to uh, the extreme side of it, being introduced to the manipulation of it, um, especially when you look at the Wall Street bets. Has it been going on like that in real Wall Street where companies, you know, you can make those arguments, but the first introduction of hundreds of thousands of teenagers to investing was for all intents and purposes a scheme a scam a, a way for the rich to get richer in pumping you know this that or the other whether right or wrong and so it's i loved it because it was topical because it's forced us to to admit our country is financially illiterate we need resources i'm not saying it's going to be money vehicle but there's going to be a course in the next two to three years that goes into high schools across the country and says, this is our gold standard. That is what Money Vehicle is aiming for. If it's not us, it's going to be somebody else. But we are desperately in need for this. And just when I start playing through my head, oh, well, I don't talk about cryptocurrency enough. It's not in the book. It's not in this course. Maybe we should pivot. Maybe we should. Maybe we're too late. This last month of the, the volatility, the chaos, the, the things happen, and we get to come back to the principles and we get to say, yes, does cryptocurrency have a place in finance? 100%. Does it have a place in your portfolio? Absolutely. But you got to understand how everything works. You got to understand where that tolerance, where that capacity of risk is for you and how it fits. And so it's forcing us to, even at a younger age, I think NILs and college student athletes getting paid. I think trickling down to high schoolers and gamers getting paid an exorbitant amount of money at such a young age is just turning on the light bulbs to say, we need no matter what career, no matter what major, no matter where you go in your life, money is going to be a universal language that we need to start preparing people better for. So in, in a way, it was a crazy fire that it started. Um, but one that is is kind of shining a bright light on what we're trying to do. So I'm grateful for that. 
I'm also very terrified for that generation that that was their introduction. And, you know, kind of last question I like to ask most guests is, you know, if you can give someone starting or growing in, in or around the sports industry any advice, what would that be? I would say what I challenged, uh, challenged NFL rookies with. Um, first rounder, you go do what you want to do. I don't know your life, your world. Second and beyond, you got to make the team. And how I did that was humbly going and asking every coach that had something to do with my career, how I could help them, how I can add value, where, where can I do something to get on the field? Um, and I think if we have more of that mindset, it, it would really, it, that's the definition of a team player who everybody wants to be around, but it's really just understanding you don't have to be the best at something to be the best on the field. And you don't have to be the five star to go and add value to a team. And if you just simply show up each and every day and say, you need me to learn a new skill, you need me to learn a new play, you need me to learn, that's how I'm gonna add value. I think that would be the most tremendous thing because that is one of those principles that would stick with you way beyond the field. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you coming and contributing to the program today, and I look forward to catching up with you soon. Hey, Brett, appreciate the time, the opportunity. If you guys are interested in a financial literacy course, yourmoneyvehicle.com has got you taken care of, so check it out. Thanks for listening to the Sports Equity Podcast, where we discuss the value that sports brings to business. Follow us for new episodes on a weekly basis. See you next time.